Hi, Tom. Hello. All right. Yeah, yeah, I am all right. Uh, thanks for agreeing to come on the podcast. Um, I know a little bit about you, but for the listeners, could you please tell them your name and what it is you do today? Yes, my name is Tom Armstrong and I work in fashion marketing. Um, I've been freelance for the best part of 10 years. I now work full time at an independent menswear brand called Hamilton and Hair. Um, before this, I had a magazine, print magazine um, called The Move. Before that, I was editor of an online website called Sabotage Times. Um, so a bit of journalism bit of marketing, do shoots, editorial. That is the long-winded way of telling you what I do. Fantastic. Well, it sounds exciting. Um, now, before we get into the kind of nuts and bolts of how you got to there, um, what are your memories of secondary school? I quite liked school. I went to school in Himes Park, which is uh, like northeast London. Mm-hmm. Um, and I quite liked school. I was not... The, I was quite a capable student, but I found concentration quite difficult. Um, and, but, you know, generally, as far as a state school in East London goes, it was, it was pretty good. There was a good mix of people. Um, I think when you go out to the sort of suburban areas of London, you do tend to get quite a wide scope of different people from different backgrounds. Um, and it's just, yeah, so it was a kind of a good start to life in that respect because it put you in a group with lots of different people, all different from you, some similar to you. You just kind of had to get on with people. Um, yeah. So I think, you know, in that respect, I really enjoyed it. Um, I wasn't ever really, university never really appealed to me. Um, I sort of left school. I did one term of A-levels and yeah. decided it, it, it wasn't for me. Uh, once I was 16, all I really wanted to do was go out and earn money, to be honest. And doing another couple of years at what, what seemed like school to me was just, I wasn't interested. Um, yeah. But there was and, never gone. But So, um, lots in there. First thing I wanted to ask you, when you talked about actually there was a big mix of people at your school. So, was there a mix of, I guess we said, like working class kids and kids from professional like where their parents were professionals middle class kids was it a, a, yeah. a wide mix yeah there was there was actually um and I guess I guess you get that in the suburbs because you're sort of you're only 10 minutes from inner city and then if you go 10 minutes the other way there's a lot of what what I guess in the area that I grew up in in, in northeast London a lot of kind of new money a lot of self-made people um yeah. made money from kind of non-academic means, whether that's yeah. with a trade or, um, you know, whatever. But so there was kind of a, a mixture of different socioeconomic backgrounds. Um, again, I think that's a good thing because it, yeah. it held me in good stead for life uh, until I started working. I'm jumping forward a little bit, but so I started working in the media and I realised actually I, I hadn't really met proper posh people. <laughs> <laughs> that come a lot later in life. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you would have been you did GCSEs is that right yeah. I did GCSEs yeah 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 and what did you take can you remember I can I took history I really yeah. liked history and I took took food yeah but history was the main one history was the one that I really loved and yeah. I kind of found with school that if I applied myself to something I could do really well and I found it quite easy and especially if I had a good relationship with the teacher, which I did in history, I had a brilliant teacher called Mr. Davis. Um, yeah. And he, he just knew how to get the best out of people. He knew how yeah. to engage with students. Um, and I did, I did well in history. I got an A and I, and I loved it. I looked, really looked forward to it. In other subjects, I weren't particularly great at and I didn't have such a good interest in. I didn't do well. In fact, I'm not even sure I went to the exam for some of them just because yeah. I was so uninterested. And... Um, and <laughs> And I remember at school, and I do remember it's like speaking to teachers and saying, you know, I'm never going to need this knowledge yeah. in real life. I'm never going to need to understand the inner workings of physics or long division. Yeah. So why yeah. do I here and learn it? And honestly, 40 years later, no, I mean, not 30 years later, 
15 years later, obviously I wasn't very good at maths. <laughs> I, uh, I, still, <laughs> I still don't really know why I, had to, why I had to learn that stuff. I don't know. I don't know. But yeah, um, yeah but that's another story. Funnily enough, I'm really into physics now, but all the stuff like, you know, just as a, a, as a passing interest, as in I watch Brian Cox documentaries on TV. Um, yeah. Now, like I, all the stuff that I'm interested in now, I sort of picked it up later on in life when, when the time was right. Um, yeah. You know, sitting learning stuff like that at school just didn't interest me. And, and, and there is that sense of when I went to look around the, my kids' school and I'm in there going, oh, wow, look at this art and look at this. And isn't the history department amazing? And, and I would have done so much better if I'd have gone to school now. Um, yeah. So, yeah, yeah. And I, I read A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking. I mean, it took me three weeks on holiday. <laughs> I was just like <laughs> going back 12 pages. But at, at school, I've, I'd have had no interest like, in quantum physics, certainly. Um, so the A-levels, was that staying on at sixth form at your existing school? Was it just expected that you would do that? Well, it, what, I wouldn't say that it was expected. Um, okay. Like I say, a lot, a lot of people in the area that I grew up had done well in life through non-academic means. Yeah. So it, it, it was it was never, the academic route was never sort of forced onto you. And in fact, a mm. lot of the time, it was almost looked down upon a little bit because it was like, well, you're 16 now, you can go out and earn money. Why do you want to stay at school? Um, yeah. You should be going out learning a trade or, or doing doing yeah. something with your time so why would you want to bother staying on um so it it wasn't expected I kind of just did it because I didn't know what else to do um yeah I stayed on yeah because I hadn't found a job and as soon as I did find a job that accepted me full-time I left um that was it and um this really interesting point that you make there because I, I think there is that cultural element that you touch on where actually if you you're surrounded by people who have been successful on you know as entrepreneurs or they've got a trade they've built their own businesses then that's kind of I guess the expectation or the the role modeling and I am fascinated and I wonder how much of things like government policy doesn't you know it, it's always designed to erase some of that I yeah. wonder this emphasis on there is a set route to success do you, do you think well yeah I do think that and I think that it's a really it's a really curious thing that we put so much weight on people to make really important life decisions at 16 yeah uh, and and I think there really needs to be they really I think young people need to understand that the decision that you make about university and A-levels when you're 16, mm. that, that they can, you're not, how can I put this? So it really feels like when you're 15, when you're 15 16, choosing your GCSEs or your A-levels or whether to go to university, that those decisions are going to stay with you for the rest of your life and they're yeah. irrevocable and, yeah. And there's so much pressure on you to, to make the right choice. When you, you've only been on the planet for 16 years, you don't have a, like, you've got no clue. Yeah. And, and actually, the biggest thing that, that I've learned is that everything is reversible and people are adaptable. And if you make what feels like the wrong decision, you can, you can correct it. Um, yeah. And that adaptability, I think young people would do really well to, to be told that and just be like, you know, you can relax a little bit. If you feel like yeah. going to university, maybe it's the right thing crack on go for it you you can be a student you know you can choose to go to work and then go be a student later on in life if you like there's other options yeah and I wonder and and it feels like some of that has been taken away because you have to stay on now you have to have some form of education till you're 18 um and I think that is a challenge for a lot of young people where they're like why can't I just get a job I've, like I read last month that the government are thinking about taking the student loan away or access to the student loan mm. for students who don't get uh, English or maths GCSE. Yeah. Which, which is, I, I, I guess their reasoning is that people are getting into too much debt 
for what they see as low quality degrees. Um, but what it actually does, I think, is, is blocks access to lots of entry level jobs for creative, potentially really creatively gifted students who might not be as academically capable or in, even interested academically, yeah. traditionally academically. And and, it's, and, it, and it cuts a lot of jobs away for those people because you have to have a degree to get into a lot of those jobs. Um, yeah. And I think that, you know, the answer to that is just deprioritise degrees, in, in especially in the creative industries, because you really don't need to have a degree to do a lot of, well, especially in the career that I've had. Nobody's ever asked me even what I've got for GCSEs. Um, no. I've never it's just not important. I think that what is important is that you, you show willing and passion um, yeah. and the opportunity should be there for you to develop your potential. Um, it's the idea that you have to have a degree to do something creative. It's just nonsense. Yeah. And, and so I guess that kind of brings us to thinking about how, and I, I know kind of from looking at some of your um, work that you've worked on campaigns for some extremely large and well-known uh, sportswear brands. Um, how how do you get? How did you get to do that? So you talked about adaptability, uh, getting along with people. What was your first step into building out your career as a creative? So I, I started quite late in life um, in the media. I didn't start till I was twenty three. Before that, I, know, <laughs> I was kind of I was just doing odd jobs. Um, I when I left school, I worked in a designer clothes shop. Um, yeah. near, which is I, I really loved that because uh, I wanted to work in fashion I'd always loved clothes I didn't yeah. really know how you would do that um, you know I, I had absolutely no idea how somebody would work in that industry but I, I sort of worked out that if I worked in a designer clothes shop then maybe I could kind of be around in that environment and yeah. I would meet people and I'd learn a little bit about the industry so that was sort of yeah. my way for retail um, then I went abroad for a few years went to Greece and um I did odd jobs, worked in a pub, worked in a yeah. former, um, just sort of like odd job retail stuff. I, I wasn't really that interested and wasn't thinking of a career. All I was really thinking about was going out on the weekends and, and like I was big into clubbing and music and clothes and yeah. that is actually all I cared about. Yeah. Like the idea of a career, just, I was not interested. I was, just, I was too young, I was having fun. Yeah. And I got to 23 and I, I thought to myself, okay, not that young anymore although it sounds silly now saying that back but at the time it felt like okay I'm not a teenager I'd need to start long term what can I do Mm. so I thought well I was I knew I was pretty good at at writing because I'd always been good at writing essays at school and if I was passionate about a subject I could form an argument pretty well and and I could I thought write in an engaging way so I said well I could write about the things that I love, clubbing, music, and, and I, you know, I, I could email websites and see if anybody will publish my work. So that's yeah. what I did. And people did start to publish stuff. So yeah. I built a little portfolio and I got a little bit of confidence, but I still did, I had no idea about the industry. Um, yeah. So I got an, an unpaid internship. So I did that for six months um, yeah. at like a online magazine. Um, okay. Did that. Then got a, from that got a job, then yeah. just slowly, slowly built my way up. Mm. Then um, how I got into doing marketing, I worked out like after a few years that there seemed to be more money in doing content for brands than yeah. for, for publishers because ad revenues were kind of really going down. Um, yeah. it was, I mean, more and more difficult to to earn money from just sort of traditional journalism and feature writing whereas brands suddenly wanted to become publishers um so they were paying for 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 content yeah yeah that's a really good point can I ask you one quick question there you said that your internship was unpaid which is just you know anything oh you know no it's also the experience so how did you manage to pay your way through that how how did you live so the first thing is lucky. I was living. I, I was living in London, so I could live at home on not okay. very much money because I'm from London. If I wasn't from London, forget about it. There's no way I could have done it because I wouldn't have been able to afford to get there and back, yeah. um, or, or to live in London. Yeah. 
Yeah. But they, they paid my expenses, but the expenses weren't enough to cover my travel. Right. So I had so I was working on a Sunday yeah. um, to to pay for the travel to get in. Okay. And I was I was signing on the dole, yeah. but I remember at the time I said I asked the dole office, look, I've been offered this un- internship, unpaid internship, and I think it's going to lead to a, a job. And they were like, you're not allowed to do it because <laughs> <laughs> because the time that you are spending working at this yeah. internship, you should be at home looking for jobs. I mean, right. uh, what what kind of a backward? thinking is that I'm actually yeah. out there putting myself about and, and, and gaining experience and meeting people yeah. and and inevitably it led to a job but yeah. up to the job center I wouldn't have been able to do that I'd been sitting at home with a metro and a marker pen circling <laughs> jobs I'd still be there now probably yeah <laughs> you know what I mean so so that's how I sort of I, with com- combination of the doll money yeah and working on a Sunday yeah. That 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 was just covering just about covering my overheads and giving me a little bit of money to go out at the weekends. Yeah, it is crazy, isn't it? Because there is an element of, as you say, you were creating your career and building that network, honing your skills, showing what you were capable of to the kind of people that you wanted to work for. And if you'd have gone and done A levels or something like that, that would have been okay. But this wasn't in the context of, yeah, what you can claim job seekers allowance for or whatever. That's just mad, isn't it? Like I said, it is, it, you were doing exactly what uh, the government would like people to do. Get on your bike, yeah. you know. <laughs> oh, uh, it's, just, it's just that computer says no thinking. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it's completely rigid of like, no, yeah. this is what you're meant to do. This is how it's got to, got to be done. And you, yeah. You, not allowed to think outside the box and create your own opportunities. You've just got to follow this path and that's that. Yeah. That's mad. So how long were you at the place where you did the inter- in, uh, internship for? I was there for six months and then they offered me a job um, yeah. because I think they were just fed up of me hanging around. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I start paying these kids. Because <laughs> yeah. I, I, like, it was funny because I was doing an internship with, um, probably half a dozen other people who were all younger than me who had all come out of university um, but I, I, I knew that I didn't really have an, an I didn't have a lifeline yeah. so if this didn't go well I had nothing to fall back on so I really yeah. had to grab it with both hands so I was there early morning last one to leave at night properly and just proper grafting because mm. that was my lifeline and I think mm. that they kind of saw that well yeah. I'm not the, the, the person that gave me the job was brilliant um Lowry her name was and mm. and I'm sure that she saw that kind of drive and, and passion and and thought you know we, we've got to get this kid on board um yeah I was very lucky that she did and I sort of I think throughout my whole especially in my early career mm. sort of owe a lot to just people seeing that drive and taking a chance on me because I didn't have that degree or, or, or qualifications or, you know, the bit of paper that says that you can do a job. I just sort mm. of was going on passion and not really, and having no idea about protocol or etiquette or the industry and sort yeah. of just, you know, relying on people seeing a bit of a, a bit of a, um, a bit of ambition. Yeah. And I guess something that you touched on, it's that ability to get on with other people and, put yourself out there Did, were there any examples of you talked about sort of protocol etiquette are there any moments where you think look back and think I can't believe I did that <laughs> yeah loads yeah loads I can't yeah I mean I mean none I, I can't think of anything that spring to mind right this second but I think what you said is right that like I sort of came from a culture where it, it was all about your character and how you got along with people and that's really kind of how you made your way in life was was making connections and and just kind of being somebody that people like being around and being fun and full of life and I sort of grew up in the 90s in 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 East London where it was a really sort of time there was a lot of new money about and um, the culture was just very fun and and, and living your life and having disposable income um, and you know, and that would like, I think that those kind of characters that I was around who had come yeah. out of the East End, made a little bit of money and, yeah. and just living their best life. I think that sort of 
that rubbed off on me and I, and I saw that they just used their, their, their personality and their sort of charisma to get on in life. And I think I yeah. definitely took that into my, into my professional life. Um, yeah. Cause I knew like I didn't have the qualifications to fall back on. Yeah. And, and where did it kind of take you then? Cause you said it, it really changed when you got into media proper. What, yeah. what, how, how did that work out? Well, I think the biggest difference that I noticed is when I sort of jumped from doing journalism mm -hmm. into sort of the, the, the journalism marketing sort of, into, more into the marketing area, mm -hmm. I sort of noticed that the people and the atmosphere changed. It became, a, it, it, it became a lot more professional um, and I've a lot more upper middle class yeah. uh, and I started to really feel a bit like a fish out of water. Um, mm -hmm. Whereas... The people that I was working with before in journalism had all been, um, you know, pretty open-minded, liberal, and just really took people for what they were. Um, and I just found the, I found the environment when I when I went into marketing to be to be quite different. Um, yeah. Like I say, a lot more professional. And it, and if you hadn't. I've really noticed, I never noticed before that I didn't have a degree or that I, I had a sort of a non-traditional background. Whereas in, in the marketing and the agencies and, and that kind of world, you sort of did notice more um, because there were just, nobody had a regional accent or very few people had a strong regional accent or yeah. cultural references that you just didn't get. Or like yeah. talking about schools and holidays and, and things like that that you, you, you didn't really get that just reinforced that that idea that maybe you don't belong here because um, yeah. you know they've all studied and got a degree and and all the rest of it um, yeah. so that was yeah I, I think when I made that move into the marketing world um, yeah. although I was lucky that I worked with some really lovely people and, and yeah. great smaller agencies um, who you know gave me opportunities to, to, to reach my potential and really supportive um, mm. I definitely did notice, you know, the bigger, like the bigger agencies, definitely like the bigger agencies were a lot more culturally homogenous, I would say. And um, something that intrigued me was um, the fact that where you've got lots of big agencies, you know, like um, street culture is, you know, very popular. And if you look at the way like KFC do their marketing, for example, I imagine some of that comes from a very big agency. And so I wonder if there is an element of you've got like one kind of more homogenous group of people using the culture of the majority of people yeah. to sell yeah. to them. Do you see sort of where I'm getting it? doesn't feel, I, feel quite yeah. right. And I, I, I did have like... Yeah, I, I certainly experienced a level of, of internal conflict um, mm. for that reason. Uh, and one thing that I noticed was that, um, you know, talking about working class creatives. Yeah. Those, that, that industry is very, it's getting a lot better at giving opportunities to, to freelancers from, from non-academic or working class yeah. backgrounds, whether that's, you know, photographers, videographers. Um, yeah. But what, what, what they really won't do is give the desk jobs, the, the client-facing jobs, the yeah. you know, money jobs, the stable money. Those, yeah. they, they only go to the people who are like them, who have got that polish um, and that yeah. sort of social training. Um, yeah. and, I, and, I, and I'm not, I don't think that's always a conscious thing. I don't think yeah. they all sit together in a room and think, well, how can we keep working class people out of this? Industry? <laughs> <laughs> I, I just think it's a, it's an unfortunate consequence of unconscious bias that has been unchecked for a very very long time, but optimistically, I think that is starting to change slowly. Yeah. There are a lot, there are more conversations now in the media, even in the last year, about mm. social equality and and accent bias than I've ever seen in in my professional life, and hopefully, it actually leads to to proper change. Yeah, and I think um, let's talk about common people, actually, um, because the reason I came across you was because I 
follow like social mobility is a big thing for me and I speak about it and it came up on LinkedIn that you are a founder member if I've got this right of common people can you explain what that is about yeah so common people is a network for people working in the creative industries who've got experience of being from a working class background Um, and it started with a friend of mine Jed Hallam Um, he we were chatting one day a statistic had come out that only 16% of people employed in full-time positions in the working in in, in the creative industries are from working class backgrounds and we were talking about you know how how shocking and disappointing and frustrating that is and he realized he was having the same conversation with lots of other different people but there was actually no way of all of us chatting to each other about it and we'd all said we feel like the odd one's out or we feel like we're the only people out there but that it, it wasn't the case there were more of us out there we just mm-hmm. needed a way of connecting so so jed came up with the idea of putting everybody in a whatsapp group and basically just seeing what happened um yeah. what happened was everybody had a friend or a couple of friends that that also were from that background so they added people in and then they added people in and within like 48 hours we'd outgrown the size maximum size of a whatsapp group so we had to move yeah. to slack and then we had like i think by the end of the week we had like 500 people from yeah. uni grads to people leaving school to ceos founders of like businesses and charities right across the board or in all yeah. the creative industries so it, it became a really positive um almost you know life-affirming reassuring thing for a lot of people and then people started sharing jobs and you know asking asking advice and people said you know I've never you know xyz has happened to me at work and I've never had anybody to ask is this normal or what do I do in this situation and I'm not just talking about young people either people who are like really in a quite advanced stage of their career Um, and you know people have made really good friends out of it so that was that was just over a year ago we just done yeah. some um, merchandise uh, yeah. through Everest to raise money with the 93% Foundation, which is a social mobility charity. Yeah, so, yeah, it's, it's going well. It's going really well at the moment. And um, when when you talk about like the creative industries as a whole, what would you break that down into? Because I immediately go to media, but what other kind of sectors would you put in there? When I think creative industries, I think TV, film, advertising, music, um, publishing, and each one of those has got its own specific problems. Um, But I think in general, they tend to fall under the same umbrella. Um, Yeah, I'm I'm sure there are more that I haven't thought of. And it's it's quite, um, I I found that like statistic quite, shocking at first like 16 percent. oh my god um and then I was thinking reflecting on what you'd said like with journalism for example I've got a friend he's a journalist and it took him so 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 long to become established I don't know 10 years or so but he had a level of support that I couldn't have had for example and it did sort of highlight to me how in a lot of those industries so much of it is not well paid or it takes you a decade just to get your name in front of the right people that if you don't have a safety net or a support network well then how are you supposed to find your way in no definitely and I think like um like I mentioned earlier when it became harder and harder to get ad revenues from 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 writing the consequence or one consequence of that is that it becomes less well paid and, and, and it leaves out loads and loads yeah. of people. And that isn't just journalism. That's, you know, across loads of the creative industries. If, if the money's not in it, then it becomes attractive or even just prohibitively like, you know, it's impossible. How can you do it? Mm-hmm. It's impossible. If you're not earning money that you have to pay to live in London, um, yeah. like, where the center of the industries tend to be how can you know and um what kind of things so you said like common people's got a network that people can use to get to know one another and feel like yeah they're not on their own and you've been sharing 
jobs and I think I read some I think I read a piece in the drum where you were featured and have you got some kind of uh and you work with the 93 percent foundation where do you when next do you think common people could go what other things do you think it could do well I don't know I I really I, I think the more members that we have, the better it is for everybody because you, you realise what a sizable group you're a part of and everybody pulling their experience and, and expertise and contacts um, and only do amazing things. I think long term, what I really want is to sort of change the conversation from uh, like how can we be allowed into these industries or how can we get a leg up into these industries into more of a headspace of like we actually don't need we don't need approval we don't need anybody help we can actually do it ourselves because there's look there's loads of us we've got really we've got great talent we've got contacts and all right if these industries won't let us in then we'll just do it ourselves you know yeah. if we can't get jobs in these companies we'll start our own companies um yeah. and, you know so that people can't ignore us and I, I would really like that to i'd like stuff like that to to, to start happening and yeah, um do their own thing. And I saw an example of that um from your work where you said you started up a magazine yourself. Can yeah. you talk a little bit about that? Because um I think it was a really great story in that. So in 2016 I started a magazine called The Move, um, mm. which was like club culture, fashion, music, all, all the things that I love. And yeah. um I sort of decided to do that because I was becoming a little bit disenfranchised with online media. Uh, it was becoming harder and harder to, to build up a relationship as an editor with your audience because traffic was so transient with the rise of social media. Um, everybody was just kind of, they'd, they'd see a link to your website, they'd be in and then they'd be out again um, without ever really remembering who the publisher was. Um, so I, I decided maybe I'd try something that, gave me a stronger connection to a smaller amount of people and maybe that would be a little bit more fulfilling than just chasing traffic with um yeah. with bloody cat videos or whatever yeah. <laughs> <laughs> whatever the social media platform was choosing to push that month you had yeah. to all your content strategy to suit them and I thought well no I don't really want to do that thank you so um <laughs> I, I'll, I'll do a magazine then um so it, I, I yeah, it, it was good. We did it for six issues um, yeah. and I learned a lot. I really enjoyed doing it and I really did love having those stronger relationships because if people have bought something for, for at, like, you know, at whatever a magazine costs, five, ten pounds, um, yeah. they're going to spend more time with it. They're going to have a stronger relationship with it because they want to get something back from their investment. Um, yeah. And, it, I, and I loved the fact that when someone bought the magazine, I could write their, like, I, it was me writing their address on the envelope and sending it yeah. off to them. You don't get yeah. that connection um, on, on, a, on a website. Right, you might get a million people might read an article, but you can't actually chat to any of them about it. Or, like, I mean, yeah, people might leave comments, but they yeah. tell you, people telling you you don't know what you're talking about. But when people buy, when people buy a magazine, they, they like it and you get, you know, emails and Instagram messages you can make friends and you can see the mag in people's homes. And like that was so much more fulfilling to me. I loved it, man. But COVID, unfortunately, yeah. COVID and burnout really, because I was doing like two, three issues a year. They were hundred page issues because I wanted to give people value for money. And mm. I knew that the difference with, with the internet, people don't pay for generally, you know, nowadays there's paywalls and things, but at the time they were less common. So yeah, it was kind of all about free traffic. And I thought, I, I thought if people are actually going to buy something, it's got to be of really, really good quality. It's got to yeah. be better than what they can get for free online. Um, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the resources that I had to put in, and I'm just mm. talking about like, you know, time and, and brain power to, mm. to maintain that level of quality over six issues was difficult, really hard on a small budget as well. So I was yeah. feeling a bit burnt out. And then when COVID came, obviously all the printing presses shut and we had no way of distributing the mag because the, the record shops that we sold it in were closed and yeah. about you know there wasn't anything to write about to be to be blunt so 
mm. I just decided to knock it on the head. But mm. I still love print journalism. Love it. Yeah. And um, and you also did, uh, there was the retro store campaign that you did as well, because I love the idea of what you said, in a world full of cat videos, um, you making something that is still physical, yeah. it's person-to-person interaction, and and that still lands really well. Uh, yeah, the, the, the store was a brilliant project that I did with Adidas and Mondale, who uh, Mondale is a football magazine and yeah. creative agency. Um, what we did, they, the Adidas were re-releasing a trainer that had come out in the, the 70s or the 80s. Mm-hmm. And we had to think of a way of making it exciting because there were new trainers released every day now. So mm-hmm. how do you get people talking about just, you know, what could just be another trainer? So we decided to, to create a, like an old school uh, sports shop you yeah. know, like old independent sports shop with like tennis yeah. rackets and those, you know, the, the neon stars with yeah. stuff on it. And we thought we, we just, we took over a shop for a week um, and just like created this whole like immersive thing, bought like old props from eBay, old footballs and got AstroTurf on the floor. And when yeah. people went in, then they would see on the wall, it was, was all these new Adidas trainers. So then it, it sort of clicked, oh, this is a, this is a thing. But yeah. That was a that was a really really fun project to work on. I wish I could do more stuff like that, you know, because the the brands we did it with a shop called Hannum, um, who were based yeah. up in Scotland, and um, they were just they gave us green light. They were like, do whatever you want, you know. Sometimes yeah. people can be really precious about their logo or their or their brand. They were just like, nah, do whatever you want. So we did. We had like um, flyers made up like an old sports shop advert that you might see in the back of a newspaper. Yeah. Uh, Ah, oh, yeah, it was really fun. I'd nice. like to do more stuff like that, you know, fun stuff. I think that's what's lacking. That's, that's definitely been lacking in it. I've noticed, because I grew up in the 90s, right? When everything yeah. was, it was all about being fun and, and, and yeah. having a laugh. And, yeah. and, I, I, and I think that's been lacking from, from the media and advertising and publishing mm. definitely recently just doing things because it's because it's, it's fun and it makes people laugh and it's a, like it's a good idea that's it just like just do it just spend a bit of money and crack on and um how do you so and, and this is what it feels to me kind of like you built your career you said like at school you're like well I did the stuff that really interested me um when when I was engaged with it that was when I excelled and then you kind of took that into your apprenticeship and, and actually into your first job, you're like, great music, fashion, clubbing, excellent. So you've managed to take all the things that you love and and build a career that traditionally people might say, well, you only get to do that if you've gone down the university route. Um, what what do you think it is that has put you in good stead through throughout that time? I, I, I think always, always having your, your antennae on. Yeah, having your radar on for yeah. opportunities, mm-hmm. um, just being able to create your own opportunities, I think, is a really important skill. Um, yeah. You know, when, when there aren't any, you know, you could just sit behind a desk for 30 years at the same job, waiting for someone else to, to give you a pay rise or a promotion. Or, yeah. I mean, but it, life, it don't always work out like that. Sometimes you've got to just go out there and get your own thing, do your yeah. own thing. And, and and make your own luck a little bit. Yeah, so I think that that is that is probably one skill that has that has helped me. Um, it's funny, right? Do you know what? I'm looking at my cat talking about cat videos. Yesterday, <laughs> she came in. She had a bit of toast that she found in the garden. Wow. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and I was, thinking, I was thinking, we give you food, right? We give you breakfast and dinner every day. But she was a stray. We got her as a stray, right? Yeah. And 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 I thought to myself, well. She obviously learned when she was young that yeah. she had to go out and find her own food and she had to go and raid through the bins and yeah. get toast or get her like fish bone or whatever it was. So she learned them skills as, yeah. as a young kitten and she's still now, she's two years old. Yeah, she gets food. We give, we give her food in a bowl, but she still goes out there and gets toast and brings it back because she's, <laughs> do you know what I'm saying? And I actually thought to myself, I bet like, you know, kittens that have been like nurtured from, from day dot and, and always been sort of looked after and never had to do their own thing. 
they wouldn't know how to do that. So if shit, yeah. hit and they had to, they had to survive. They wouldn't know how to go and like to to, to go and get their own food like she does. So no? I think I think that's a good that's a good analogy for life. She she taught me a lot there, and I think that's another thing as well. I think you can always learn from every opportunity. You can always yeah. you can be inspired by everything. Um, and there's always an opportunity to learn, even when your cat comes and brings you a bit of toast that she found in the garden. I love it. She's going, that's not buttered all the way to the edge. Could you sort that out, please? <laughs> it actually it had buttered like a few days ago by the looks of it. It was off. Like... <laughs> <laughs> funny. Um, and I do, I do like that analogy, and it's something that actually I um, think about a lot because... I had to think on my feet as a young person and because of where I find myself today my children are far more cosseted than I was and you think does that mean that you don't learn to strive you know it's something that worry about really (laughs) I have to just tell them when they're 16 could you get out please get a job Um, (laughs) but it is that thing that you say of that being open to opportunities being flexible adaptable learning from cats um but that creativity that you had would have just been stifled in a well like it's by staying at sixth form or by working in a boring office yeah um, um a good friend of mine actually the guy who published the move the magazine james brown he 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 always says ambition, his definition of ambition is when, no, hang on, I've got that wrong, let me start again. His definition of luck is when ambition is opportunity. And I've ah, always yeah. remembered that, and he's taught me a lot of it, he's taught me a lot of valuable things, but that I think is the one that comes back to me. Um, because lots of people have lots of one and not enough of the other, and, yeah. and it never really, never really happens for them. And I think if if you've got that ambition and you're always out there looking for opportunities and looking for little gaps that you can fill or ways that you can make yourself useful um, or or thinking of things that you do that other people can't do, I think that's a big thing to do a little bit of mentoring. And that's one thing I always tell tell young people is, although you might not have a, a, a traditional background in the sort of academic sense, there's a lot that you can do that other people can't do because you've had a unique experience. And um and I think that's really important. So when, when you do find those opportunities, you make the most of them. Yeah, I love that. And, and you, you made me think there that, because certainly my accent changed when I went into the corporate environment and it takes a lot of energy to put on that polish, which distracts you from the stuff you're naturally gifted at, potentially. Um, yeah, I had yeah. an interesting chat. I was on a on a panel talk a couple of months ago, mm. and um, there was a there was an interesting guy, older guy, really successful in in Adland, mm. and he was like, as soon as I worked out that it was only kind of me getting in my own way, I found confidence, and I realised that people would started taking me more seriously because I believed in myself, um, yeah. and so other people believed me, and I sort of you know I, I, at the time I sort of. I agreed to him up to a point because I think that also, you know, you can have all the confidence in the world, but structural discrimination does exist. There's some things that you just can't, you know, you can't change. But I actually think he makes an interesting point um, in that, that, that confidence, you you get that later on in life. uh, If you're from a sort of a a working class or or, or non-academic background, it takes you a long time to get that confidence. You have to have a few successes in your career um, to start believing in yourself and wouldn't it be amazing if you left school or, or you left university with that amount of confidence in yourself which if you go to a private school you you tend to do um yeah. so in order in that time that you're sort of working your way up and fit and getting feeling comfortable in yourself yeah it might take 10-15 years for you to get to that point you're already behind other people who have already have always had it so you're kind of, at a, you know, you're at a disadvantage. So, yeah. So, yeah, it, it would be lovely if you didn't have to do that by making mistakes and, and, and doing it yourself. Yeah. No, oh, it's, it's just, I don't know. There's, there was so much from 
sort of things you say about school and the area where you grew up and then stuff like that it is and I know people who have their kids in the private system and for some of them it is it's about that it's about that they will come out ahead in that sense of how you conduct yourself how you speak to others having a network and it is it's it shouldn't be like that it shouldn't be like that I shouldn't but if you ask me that is where the money goes that's where the money goes you know what I mean um yeah it's that polish um uh, yeah yeah uh, that's that is what they don't teach you necessarily at, at state school no no and 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 I think it wouldn't take too much for some of that to be transferred across I listened to a really interesting episode of the social mobility podcast and the guest was asked what would you do I think if you could do one thing and they said just because they had benefited from so whilst their parents were working class they had put them into the private school system and they said the one thing that they would like to see would be to have education just evened out where everyone get and I know I guess that's a massive thing but people get that same quality of experience or they come out of it feeling like I'm ready to go out into the world that is the government line right the government line is and and I read this the education secretary recently said this in response to um there was a big there was a conversation about uh Oxbridge accepting more pupils from working class backgrounds or or more from state schools and his thing is like you know we, we have to make sure that state schools are at rather than quotas we have to make sure that state schools are at the level of private schools so that we don't need quotas and everybody's coming out at the same but why would I mean listen why would they do that why would <laughs> why would you can make something that you pay for like these people pay thousands and thousands and thousands to put their yeah. kids in the best private schools what is their motivation to, to yeah. devalue them to make to make free schools just as good as them? Because then, what are they paying for? Like, yeah. th- why would you trust these people? To, and I'm I'm sorry to get too political, but but why would you trust the government, who are the product and biggest champions of private schools, yeah, to to to, to make them to make them obsolete? by making free yeah. schools just as good so that you can send your kids to any free school and get the same services as you would to people who pay hundreds of thousands. You know, yeah. they, they're not going to do it. Like, do they think we were born yesterday? Come on. Yeah, well, and it's funny, actually, what's quite interesting is um, I, if I think about, if I speak to people where I grew up, um, there is just that, I guess, tacit understanding of, well, of course they wouldn't do that. It's like, what was yeah. I born yesterday? Yeah. And and there is an element of, I don't know. It's really it's really fascinating to me to, you know, um, I definitely have a kind of, you know, I live in a middle class area, um, and that's what school intake is pretty much. And there is a lot of, oh, but yeah, that I'm sure that the government will sort this out. You know, there is that difference between. I think that there is that um well it feels to me like a working class thing of like we know they're a bunch of jokers uh yeah. we wouldn't trust them do you think we were born yesterday and 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 I I don't know it's hard for me to put my finger on and I guess that's why class is seen as such a contentious um topic or difficult to discuss but there's definitely differences um do you know Tony it's a hard thing to accept that the people who are supposed to be looking after you actually don't have your best interests at heart. Mm. And that is why I think some people just go along with it because they want to believe that it's true because the opposite yeah. is just a reality to face. Yeah, 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 it's true. <laughs> it is true. Wow. So what do we do about it, Tom? <laughs> we well, get on I, and you make I, your own I, opportunities. I, I, yeah, but I think that one thing that, that we try and say to common people is it's quite a simple thing that if you're working at a company, yeah. you can just ask, is is social mobility, uh, is socioeconomic background or class, is that considered in our diversity policy? Yeah. Um, there's a lot of the time I think people find that it's not. 
And it's not, and again, it's not a malicious decision. It's just that people don't consider it um, in in the same way as other protected characteristics. Um, In fact, it's not a protected characteristics, but it, you know, some people would say it should be, but that could be just quite a, that could be quite a simple way of starting a conversation and saying, what do, what do we do about this internally? Rather than waiting for the government to to make policies and and, and do all, all the rest of it, you know, we can make the, the change from the inside, from the industry. Um, and if your company, maybe your company's a creative company and there's certain entry-level jobs that require a degree, you know, let's have a discussion. Do we really need that? Are there other ways that we could find talent? Um, even s- s- some, I, I once applied to, uh, it was one of the museums um, mm. or galleries. In fact, it was more than one I had this problem, but the, the application process was done via an automated form. And you had yeah. to put your, your um, education into the forms to be able to progress to the next step. So if you didn't have a university degree, if you couldn't put that information in, you couldn't progress to the next step. Wow. Um, it, it, the assumption was that if you apply for this job, then you have to have this information. Or yeah. maybe it was just an oversight when they created the form and they didn't even think, oh, bloody hell, what if people can't fill this section in because they didn't go to university? because it was just assumed that everybody's been. Yeah. Things like that. Maybe let maybe let's start having these conversations now. Yeah, I love that. And you've completely sort of brought us back on track there was as I was sort of like taking myself off down a rabbit hole, couldn't find my way out of. But um <laughs> yes, absolutely. And I do agree with that. Um if I look at some of the work that like the big four, the consulting firms are doing around their social mobility um, uh, networks and they use um, socioeconomic background information uh, when they're looking at their employee mix and then they're trying to figure out what do they do with that data Um, so yeah I think as you say instead of waiting for things to change in the education system industry can step in and say let's go and speak to kids in state um, secondary schools let's offer work experience that's paid or yeah. yeah 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 there are lots of really good companies charities social enterprises who yeah. are specifically look helping companies um sort of tackle socioeconomic diversity um and it's yeah. one way one problem is that people you know you can say there are these great companies out there but how do you even find them where do you where do you start and yeah. i would say those people get into common people drop us yeah. a message or or, or join the group um, and just, you know, ask because there are loads and loads of people out there. I've actually got a little bit of a database um, of great companies who are doing work and mentorship schemes, uh, Brilliant. the rest of it. Yeah. So just drop us a message. Brilliant. So I'll put the links to um, how to get in touch with common people in the show notes. Um, I've just loved talking to you because We've gone very deep and serious and we've had cats bringing toasting from the garden, which is just like... (laughs) It's an hour. Is it? Wow. Wow. Thanks, Tom. Thank you. It's been fun. Thanks.